Go ahead and bark. Welcome back to the Key in the Lake podcast, the premier whiskey podcast, now at the mention of whiskey in its title. Hey, this is Jake, coming live from Chicago, Illinois, on a gloomy Friday afternoon with my dog Lola, chewing on cords, it looks like. Let's stop doing that. No, 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 we do not want to do that. Yeah, so um, we'll talk about whiskey and not chew on cords. How about that, Lola? All right, deal done. Um, also with me today is Mr. Stephen Dragoon of the Loose Dow. Hello, thank you for having me. Playing, again. Co- playing co-host. Ah, it's it's an honor to just be here as always. Well, you're better than the usual Scottish guy in that show. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. He, he's a, he's a bit rough around. And, I think we'd all agree there. And the other Puerto Rican that used to be in that chair most of the time, way better. So, um, you know, or Mexican, whatever he wants to be, he always he always changes it in the city. So, you know, whatever. Very fluid in that sense, yeah, Mr. Wilson it's nice Torres. Nice to be so fluid. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully he'll come back on the podcast and host from this castle and key perch one of these days. <laughs> But who knows? But uh, also with us today, we have a very special guest, the one and only Mr. Alex Brick of Woodenville Whiskey. Hello, hello. Thank you very much for having me today. Oh, more. It's uh, it's way too delayed. I'll put it that way. We've been talking about this for quite a while, and, yeah. and uh, I, th- I think we can just sort of blame scheduling at this point. So Blame all the whiskey world for that. So yeah, it's, yeah, precisely. It's amazing how much we run into each other. Um, oh, yeah. Like all of us, you know, in the industry. But Pretty constantly. I mean, I actually usually have a microphone with me in my bag. It's odd and strange, but uh, the actual point of being able to pull that microphone out of a bar or an event yep. and start recording might get a few eyes of judgment passed on us. Yeah. I mean, Steve <laughs> and I literally bumped into each other at the Art Institute, what, like three, four weeks ago, yeah, something like that. Really nice. So, yeah. 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 For to the new... The- the dolly exhibit. I was actually with Shauna, my friend, who you saw me uh, helping move the other day. Oh, man, the full circle right there. Yeah. Small world. It wasn't over President's Day week, or what was that called? What was we that weekend? Was that Columbus Day, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Recently? Oh, well, no, I know. It was a I, Thursday. I, I think okay. we were all just capitalizing on one of the last free days That's of, uh, of the season. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's like, it's free, <laughs> and the Salvador Dolly exhibits. There. Yes, sir. I'm there. Actually, it was uh, Callum and then Matt, who runs Volume 39, were there the oh, same yeah. day I was there at some one of the holiday weekends we had in February. Nice. Yeah, but we didn't actually get into the exhibit because we were like number 439 at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, and yeah. It closes at 5 o'clock. So I thought, well, let's go over to Cindy's and get, grab a drink before, and if they call our number, we'll go back over. They call our number like at 4.20, 4.30. Like, are we actually going to get in and see anything or just be rushed out? So we decided not to go back. We just kept drinking. That's Plus, fair. once you get all the way upstairs to Cindy's, it's kind of like, no, I'd like to settle in here for right. a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like, that's a that's a, it's a vibe up there. You can just hang for a while. So. Not just like a one-drink place. No, yeah. You know? that's... So, the old fashions were flowing that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> On a Monday, not working. Uh, speaking of drink flowing, can I can I start you, Jensen, Please. with a whiskey? Yeah, let's. Yeah. Uh, Fantastic. Let's, let's get, I mean, I know we've had uh, other Woodenville reps on in the past, yeah, and yeah, we've had yeah. a conversation about Woodenville, but a refresher is always wonderful. Sure, sure. Yeah. We'll we'll start there, and I'll pass. We're, we're going to start right out with the just flagship bourbon. So help help yourselves. Thanks. I can just Sweet. go around. And start. I know you guys have had most of it at this point, but. Um, yeah, Woodenville, who are we? We are one of the Moet Hennessy family of brands. We're a Washington-based American whiskey company. Uh, we are a true craft grain to glass whiskey. Uh, very proud to say that all of our grain is grown on one family farm in 
eastern Washington. It is then uh, sent over to Woodenville, which is just northeast of Seattle, where a beautiful, beautiful area if you have the chance to get out there, uh, where it is all distilled at our distillery. Everything is hand done. We don't source any of our whiskey, which we're also very, very proud of. Uh, it is then all that juice is then taken right back to that same family farm where all our rick houses are, where we barrel age all of it. So it's this very insular, hands-on, craft-focused pro- uh, process. It's always been you guys making the whiskey to yourself. Yes, uh, yeah. since since day one, and I, I really appreciate that about our owners and founders. They decided that they didn't want to go the, they had the patience and foresight to say we don't want to go the source route. So people are talking about okay, what about your old whiskey? How's that different from the new whiskey? All of our stuff has a five year age statement, so they started making whiskey in 2010 and they launched their first bottles in 2015 wow sit on that yeah no i can yeah i understand well i don't understand because i didn't start star ward um i worked for a guy who did the same thing though and (laughs) sat on whiskey for three three and a half years and you're like what did you do in the meantime there dave Uh, new york distilling was the same way um you know because they're they produce gin and rye but uh, obviously gin only takes three to four weeks so Mm -hmm. you know the rye took a uh, minimum of four years, so they've also played the game of patience, which I appreciate. Yeah. Which is the reason why I never started a distillery, because I have no patience. But, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> but I don't think I'd ever source whiskey. Not that I'm against it. I don't think I would... I think you'd be a very special person to have the skills to blend whiskey very well. And um, I've done a little bit of blending, but sure. I, don't think, I don't think I'd make a career out of it. <laughs> I support I my to, fancy lifestyle. Oh right, I tend to I tend to tiptoe around that in the market because I always bring up how proud we are to have not sourced any of our juice. But at the end of the day, it's not like that's a bad thing, not right? Anymore, there's no. all the, there's all these huge companies that are that are very well known and well well uh, well loved whiskeys that sourced all their stuff, and it's like fine, that's great, so long as it turns out to be good whiskey at the end of the day, it's good whiskey. Yeah, like yeah. I was with the Dancing Goat guys last night. Oh, nice! Like Nick is a psycho when it comes to distilling in all the best ways, and if anyone's ever listened to this podcast, you understand what I'm talking about <laughs> with Nick Moss. But yeah, I mean he has he has whatever it is about blending and being mm-hmm. able to make really great whiskey from what he says is the best distiller in the world, MGP. And it, it, I, I don't think you can really contest that. It's yeah. kind of hard to say no to that because it's, they make the literally the widest variety of of juice in the world of distillate. Like yeah. you can't, you can't beat that. So. And it's funny how it was like a naughty word five years ago and nobody wanted yeah. it. Now like every barrel group, you know, we want the MGP barrel picks. You want sourced whiskey from this distillery because mm-hmm. you had these MGP barrels and then blended this whiskey together. Suddenly they start coming out with, you know, the, the Remus Reserve stuff mm-hmm. and everyone's losing their minds over it. For, yeah. I mean, rightly so, because it's good whiskey. Yeah. How did the relationship with the farm start for Woodenville? I actually don't have a good answer for that. Mm-hmm. Um, realistically... They wanted to make sure that it was Washington-based whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. They wanted to make sure everything was local. And our founders were lucky enough that uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Dave Pickerel from uh, uh, previous of Maker's Mark, uh, rest in peace, uh, agreed to actually come and teach them how to make whiskey. Didn't know that. Yeah. So he actually, that's, this is a cute story. So they had reached out to him time and time again saying, we want to make craft whiskey out of Washington. Can you come out and teach us how? We don't just want to fumble through this, right? Mm-hmm. Which I, again, I, I very much respect. Um and he wouldn't respond, wouldn't respond. So one of the owners found out that he was presenting, I can't remember if it was Whiskey X or Whiskey Fest here in Chicago. Um, he bought a plane ticket, got a VIP ticket to stand in line for a one-on-one with him, walked up to Dave Pickerel and said, hi, I've been messaging you. Will you please come teach us how to make whiskey? And Dave went, 
well, shit, yeah, I guess. Like, <laughs> you're very persistent. Yeah, right. so so he, he went out to Washington and, and taught them everything every step of the way. Um, and while I do not know how that farm relationship started, I have to imagine that that was part of that chunk of time and the setup of the distillery of like, okay, we want this to be Washington grain. Where's a farm that can make this happen? Where can we forge this relationship? Uh, and the Omlin family who grows all the grain there, uh, it's a, a third generation farm in, mm. the, uh, in Washington. So they've, one of the things I love about our whiskeys is that this grain was, is grade A non-GMO food quality. It hasn't been genetically engineered to be the perfect bourbon corn over the last hundred years. It's just what they've been growing for the last hundred plus. So it's, it's phenomenal because I always say our whiskey tastes like American whiskey would have tasted 150 years ago. Hmm. You know, when it was just, oh, look, we have all this surplus corn. Let's make hooch out of it instead of let's design exactly how we want this to taste. Huh. That's really interesting. Sorry, I should have put my phone on. Do not disturb. I thought I did. Apparently, I did not. I'm very unprofessional. And now we've been disturbed. We have been disturbed for all the all the listeners out there. Also disturbed. <laughs> I believe that's a penalty shot you owe us. Yeah. No. Oh, what should we what should we shoot? <laughs> the the worst whiskey I have somewhere. If I had this Icelandic whiskey that I tried in Iceland, but unfortunately lost at customs because oh dear, yeah. Well, it was terrible. It was the worst whiskey I ever had. But I, brought, I wanted to bring it back as a novelty. Sure. It sure. was a sheep dung smoked whiskey. Wow. Mm. And that sheep dung was very prevalent. Wow. Yeah. I truly wish you had that. So I was sitting at a bar in Iceland in Reykjavik and like, all right, I want to try like the local whiskey that I've heard about. And I knew it was sheep dung smoked. So I get it. And this guy next to me, Italian guy, is like, Are you drinking that sheep dung smoked whiskey? I'm like, Yeah, I'm trying. He's like, It's the most god awful thing I've ever had in my entire life. I'm like, yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, but I guess I'm going to drink this. It's probably one of the most expensive pours of whiskey I've ever paid for, too. Wow. It's like $45 US. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Okay. After you do the conversions of like Icelandic dollars, you're like, oh, okay. Dude, Iceland is not... Ch- I mean, I love Reykjavik. It's a great town. Yeah. Like, Iceland is super cool, but you, you can get a round-trip flight from O'Hare for like $300. Yeah. And then you land in yeah. Iceland and realize why it was so cheap to get there. I thought it was eighteen dollars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Had the most expensive Manhattan of my life at a bar in downtown Reykjavik. <laughs> I, I, I believe you. <laughs> and it's also kind of crazy when to get outside of Reykjavik and you're anywhere else in the country. Like, there's mm-hmm. nothing really going on. So yeah. the hotel you're staying at could be the only restaurant in that town. Mm-hmm. The gas station across the street is the only gas station or place to get any supplies if you want if you need anything. So yep. you're kind of stranded on your own. But good thing I brought a box of Cliff Bars with me. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Smart. look, if, if you're outdoorsy though, if you if you like hiking and going yeah. and see it, if you want to be able to see geysers and volcanoes and uh, uh, ice flows, all kinds of wacky stuff, all at the same time, black sand beaches, tra- travel Iceland. Oh, this I has agree. been an unpaid advertisement. Yeah, but for Icelandic air. <laughs> for Icelandic air. Yeah, I have a wife who doesn't enjoy those things, but I do and mm-hmm. made her come do those things with me. And, you know, the one day we hiked out to the plane crash, um, well, yeah, it was like 40 mile per hour winds. It was like 40 degrees, so not, not too bad. But the rain was just spitting in our face, you know, the whole yeah. the whole way there. It was to our back on the way back to the car, but Love it. yeah, yeah, champion. Did you did you happen to do the Blue Lagoon? The big, oh yeah. Oh man. Speaking of speaking of expensive things, but oh my god, it's so fun. It was great. Re- really, for like the cost of everything in Iceland, it's not the most expensive thing. In no, the world you hardly to do. notice. But... Right. Uh, definitely worth it. We went to one of the actual real uh, lagoons too. Oh yeah, we did our. So we stayed. In, I stayed in an Airbnb when I was up there, and uh, my my host basically said, "Okay, this this is the 
you know, you're going to the Blue Lagoon. They said, this is a, where the locals go. This yeah. is another natural hot spring lagoon. They also pointed out that go to a public pool. And I'm like, what? And they're like, no, literally just like the local neighborhood pool. They're all heated. I went in February of like oh, really? 2017 or something. And that's apparently what a lot of the locals in Reykjavik will do is just like, that's your Thursday afternoon is just, you get off work, you go to the pool and just hang. Huh. And it was fun. It was great. Nice. Mm. I'll, next time I go, I'll yeah. do that. Yeah. Anyway, fly Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody please do it. Yeah. yeah. After all that great uh, promotion for the country. Mm-hmm. So when did you start with Woodenville? I started um, uh, January of this year. But okay. before that, I spent a year and a half, almost, almost two years with uh, Moet Hennessy as a portfolio specialist. So at this point, I've been working with the Woodenville brand for for just about two years now. When did Mo or when did Woodenville get folded into the Moet portfolio? I believe that was 2017. Oh, so pretty quickly happened. after the yeah. whiskey was released. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. They they picked up pretty quickly, and and again, I really credit that to the fact that we have the caliber of whiskey crafting, you know, coming from mm-hmm. Mr. Pickerel and all that. Uh, we have incredible attention to detail. We don't cut the corners on anything. Uh, in fact, the bottle I'm put, uh, passing around right Ooh. now. This is our 100% rye whiskey. More whiskey. Uh, very much exemplifies that. I I love the rye. It's a gorgeous whiskey. It's phenomenal for, for classic cocktails, but it's 100% rye in the mash bill. Yeah. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is because we don't cut corners. 100% rye is a pain. It's actually a fairly inefficient way to make whiskey. That's why the vast majority of rye whiskeys out there are going to have some amount of malted barley. Right. You know, you, you need you need the amylase in there. You need those enzymes. Um, so doing 100% rye, it, it takes a little extra. You have to add extra enzymes, all that stuff, but it makes this just beautiful drinkable whiskey incredibly good in classic craft cocktails um but again this is an example of where they didn't want to cut corners a lot of people with rye in particular are sourcing from mgp mgp makes what like 90 percent of the american rye that's it's out damn there good rye. and it's yeah. damn good rye but they were like nope we're gonna make our own rye it's gonna be 100 percent rye yes that's gonna be less efficient but it's how we want to do it and it's gonna be a good a good product um so again that attitude is i think really what made moet hennessy you know this giant international luxury spirits company go oh yeah we want we want this we Mm -hmm. want this on board this is the american whiskey that we can really get behind so Mm. and at the time there wasn't too many craft distilleries out in the northwest going on i know the explosion was happening here in the midwest you know especially here in chicagoland where you had fuke of all Apadon, um, sure. yeah, Journeyman, all those brands mm-hmm. popping up and doing 100% rise as well. Oh, yeah. And there, there are a number of craft places doing that right now. And I always wondered if it was just like a trend that started off, because a lot of them actually started off together by going to distillation classes and learning how to distill together, essentially, mm-hmm. as these new founding companies. And was it just like the idea of like, hey, let's just use 100% rye because it's the e- we don't have to get other grains. If it, it's not easy to distill by itself, no. um, and then ferment or mash ferment and distill, it's a, a pastel to clean up. It's a rough grain mm-hmm. to work with. Doesn't mm-hmm. yield as much at the end. Exactly. 100%. And I always kind of wondered. I'm like, after you like you get the ins and outs of the industry and figure it out a little bit about the yield specifically, you're like. Was it just uh, easier that way because it was just one grain to put in the masher um, or was it because you were looking to do something different? I really think it comes down to flavor profile at the end of the day. Mm. I think with that barley content you typically find that will, with the barley content in rye whiskey, at least in my humble experience, I get a lot of those uh, grassy dill kind of notes, those vegetal notes Mm -hmm. in there. And I feel like a lot of people that say, I don't like rye whiskey because it's spicy are 
perhaps conflating spicy with vegetal. Like, you get a lot of that. And yes, rye does have that distinct spice to it. But when you're drinking this whiskey and, and our whiskey and other 100% ryes out there, rye is actually this very soft floral grain. It's yeah. floral. You get leather. You get fruit out of it. And it's just very expressive at the yeah. end of the day. So I think the craft movement towards doing 100% rye was just to kind of change the American public's opinion about what rye whiskey could be. Mm. Um mm. Sorry, uh, go, please, no, go. please, please. Just going back to you know the prohibition days and when you know rye was out selling bourbon you know three to one, and then prohibition happened. And then coming out of that, you know, and with the corn subsidies and you know all of that, it was essentially easier to make bourbon. Uh, you know, that's when we transitioned over. But then also you would see in like films in Hollywood, the person drinking rye was usually this, you know, vagabond, mm -hmm. you know, person like you, you wouldn't want to associate with. And he was always drinking rye. And it's like, how did it go from like, this is the American spirit to like, it's now looked down and frowned upon. Mm -hmm. It's 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 crazy how quickly that shifted. And so it's nice to see that rye is coming back because to your point, I think it's, it's a lovely grain that has a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the... The spice, I think most people are maybe mixing up the spice with burn. Mm -hmm. um, sure. You know, mm -hmm. like Rittenhouse has a very distinctive burn to oh, it. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's Love only what, like 54% rye? And so it's like, this has way less burn to it, and it's 100% yeah. rye. So I think there's that as well. It's like, it's just a really well-made oh, yeah. whiskey. Definitely. I've, I've always got that like, peppermint floral note to 100% rye whiskeys. Yeah. Um, and it gets that, almost like that menthol-y kind of like, freshness to your sure. breath at the end. sure. Always loved and kind of getting back to your point, Stephen, is that you know marketing dollars after World War II yep. went towards bourbon. You know, exactly. Jim Beam was sitting right there at you know Ellis Island as the troops came back home from the war. Mm -hmm. Like, here's Jim Beam. Yeah, it's a bourbon and drink this. And it's kind of and then they built these folklore based off of mm -hmm. you know the family recipe, the generations of the families, and pre-prohibition people like there was no foundation left there was no news clips left there was nothing for people to check on, check in on like how did these distilleries start because no one started documenting anything until like the 1900s really or the late 1800s and next thing you know bourbon becomes the boom and then the 60s come in and that great tasting vodka replaced that <laughs> and then finally at the after you know a, a near end of the industry in the 80s and 90s this craft distilling movement started and i think it not only did it push more brands to emerge and begin it pushed the bigger guys to actually look within and see how can we make our whiskey better? Yeah. Not to compete with these people, but to make sure that people are drinking great whiskey from us too, not just the small guys. And so much of that came from that response. This again, we're getting a whole history lesson here. Let's do it. That response coming out of, uh, out of Scotland, for example, Hell you yeah. know, post post sixties and seventies when single malt was nothing. That was, you know, for the, for the hippie generation, now that was what their their old man drank, and they were like, "No, hell no, we're not gonna we're not gonna drink that whiskey." So all of a sudden, you get to the '80s and '90s, and you have all these phenomenal aged single malts coming out of Scotland, going, mm. "Well, we have all this really old stock that we can suddenly be bottling and selling, and it's this incredible whiskey." So here you go, and that then turned into this prestige movement in the United States, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden bourbon went, "Wait a minute, we've been making the same stuff." Since the 1890s, all of a sudden, uh, give, uh, skipping prohibition, of course, um, we need to start all of a sudden doing things like single barrels mm -hmm. and really marketing uh, marketing our older stock and all of these famous bourbon brands that have been doing that for a long time. So that prestige movement, it's all, all part of that sort of cyclical nature of the, the spirits industry. Yeah, and even oddly enough, a lot of those barrels initially went overseas yeah. from the American market mm -hmm. and over to Asia, Australia, um, little some parts of Europe, but... It was became this like huge thing about 
house these really great allocated barrels of wild turkey jim beam maker's mark we're going over to the asian markets mm-hmm. now people are paying giant dollars to have some of those bottles that are the few that are left over mm-hmm. from that time period and now we sit here in america and we we relish those bottles <laughs> and it's all and that's all we want no, just, the, certainly the collectors right. uh... did you just see the um got it go for like hundred eighty thousand dollars this collection of Kentucky bourbons. Oh God, I hadn't seen that. Um, it was, I, I want to bring it up, but um, I can't remember. I think it was Beam. I think there was a Stitzel in there. One or two brands I'd never heard of, but it was hmm. all these creative projects created yeah. on a higher end scale yeah. in '97 um, to be sold out. But I think it went overseas initially. I'm not totally sure, but. Now someone just bought like the a few collections that are left of it, like 180 grand. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. My, yeah. A friend back in New York, uh, his name's Zev. Uh, he used to work for the Danny Meyer Group, and then he got the best job ever as the spirits person for Sotheby's. Mm. And so, oh, like, nuts. seeing his and like what he posts and what people are buying, it's like holy shit! Like, here's 20 bottles of Macallan from like 1950 to 1970. Like, you got to buy the whole lot. It's like don't even want to know how much that would go for but holy hell that's awesome it's interesting to think too like with all of these like you know there was a 1.2000 distilleries in america before covid and i know that number's gone down a little bit but just think where will all of these great craft distilleries that survive we're doing well before covid survive covid and once again on the up where they fit into the collection 25 30 years down the road well, and I, I think one of the big issues that we're going to see is we, we will eventually see a purge of craft distillation. Absolutely. You know, like it's there's there's this sort of national natural process of attrition when it comes to this. And, and we've all seen it in the market that bourbon has very much had its heyday in the United States mm-hmm. and is very much leveled out. And this is coming from someone who uh, works for a bourbon brand that he's very <laughs> fond of and would very much like to see around 25 years from now. Right. So let's clarify that. Uh, however... You have so many of these distilleries that, again, maybe did source their juice, maybe didn't have the know-how going in, that are either going to fall off the map, or we, we've all seen it out in the market before, where suddenly there's one brand that shows up on every back bar mm-hmm. over like a four-month period, because they hired an ambassador, they've got people out on the streets, they've sold in bottles and all this stuff, and then six months later you look and there's those same bottles with maybe a quarter of a bottle missing and it's going to just sit there collecting dust for a while. And that happens all too often in the craft world. Yep. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, we are we are very fortunate to be with a large company like Moet Hennessy because they're willing to, frankly, put the marketing dollars behind us. They're willing to say, okay, you can get in front of consumers. You can get in front of people. You can make this brand popular without just going and selling one-off bottles and things mm. like that. And that's – so, again, not, not everyone is lucky to work for a, a, a giant – corporate machine like that um and some would disagree with me there I, I know a lot of people that love their brands not being part of a giant corporate machine and i also respect that yeah um but uh uh i've, I've rambled on too far on that no. point but yeah th- there's that natural ebb and flow of the craft world where a lot of these will stick around for a while disappear what i'm most interested to see is 20 years from now when all of a sudden some of these dis- uh, distilleries that have disappeared just like what happened in Scotland uh, have disappeared but all of a sudden they still had juice and barrels mm. and then 20 years from now somebody buys some old warehouse and goes wait a minute the Brooklady there's, there's yeah, exactly there's a bunch of whiskey in here I wonder what we can do with this you know I just wonder how many of those distilleries will you know they're not sitting in the middle of nowhere like a lot of distilleries sure. in Scotland um, a lot of them are sitting in downtown infrastructures or mm-hmm. neighborhood infrastructures of cities or big towns 
but a lot of them are being bought out by bigger portfolios or selling off to other brands. But there was a few. I mean, I guess in a way, um, Death's Door was in that sense, kind of. Sure. And then Nick actually, Dancing Goat guys, bought mm -hmm, it up mm -hmm. and now resurrected that that brand on the gin level. Which is great because that's fantastic gin. I think yeah, I've always done. Yeah. And being being a, a native Scotty myself, I'm I always, I'm say, always yeah. happy to see Wisconsin brands flourishing. So <laughs> your neck of the woods, yeah. Yes, sir. No, Wisconsin is making amazing whiskey. Oh my God, yeah. There's so many brands out there. So many small guys. I mean, obviously a lot of them are friends, like Joe from J. Henry uh -huh. and Dancing Goat guys. But yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that this amazing whiskey is happening in the in the middle of nowhere. I mean, those are both essentially. Well, J. Henry is a farm. Like they're a yeah. farm. 30 minutes east of, of uh, Madison, and then Dancing Goat guys are 20 minutes east of Madison on their own plot of land. They mm -hmm. built a Kentucky-style rickhouse that is based on Jim Beam's rickhouses, and it's sitting in this middle in a field in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. Yeah, they've got a, they've got a beautiful space housing there, like 6,000 barrels, I think, mm -hmm. of whiskey. Yeah, so it's it's quite interesting to see where the craft movement's going. But I think I think it's also interesting to see. The future of it will be based upon who was in it to make whiskey um, for the long run, who was in it as almost like a venture, venture capitalist, I don't want to say scheme, but uh, idea, um, a way of an investment versus a way of building a brand of for the future, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think the ones that are still around, the ones that you see in the back bars and the ones that are thriving in the sense of like we're competing. I mean, obviously, I don't know if there's one craft distiller you can say like, they are in every market and doing well in every market. I said they're in like thirty out of four or thirty-five states and mm -hmm. doing well in every single state. I don't know if that brand exists. Um, it, I don't. I agree with you. I don't know that it does. You right. have to. You have to pick your battles in this industry. Ultimately, you have to understand where your key markets are going to be. And for for every brand out there, for every everyone, there's always going to be the big major markets: Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Austin, so on and so forth. Like all the, all the major cities where you're going to hire in brand ambassadors. You're going to have people working. Um, you're gonna you're gonna make a push for it. And that's again that's just sort of a natural part of the industry like you that'll happen but then all of a sudden you'll have these random one-offs like for example woodenville is very popular in georgia it turns out huh yeah we've got a really really great presence and a brand ambassador based out of atlanta awesome guy uh doing phenomenal work down there and it just georgia really likes our whiskey and mm. so the company's like hell yeah let's go for it let's let's invest in georgia let's hang out there let's get a brand ambassador let's make this all happen so. is it mostly focused in atlanta uh yeah for the for the most part hmm. yeah i know they have a pretty uh enthusiastic whiskey scene down yeah, there. Yeah, very much so. I've had many people DM me like, when's Star Wars coming to Atlanta? I'm like, I don't think anytime soon, <laughs> um, unfortunately, but it's great that there's like a dozen of you asking for right, it, which yeah. means there's probably at least like two more people that are interested in another whiskey too, other than just uh, bourbon and rice. Right, right. But it, it's also hard to judge where to put those employees. You know, it's such, mm. a, it's such a financial, not not risk, but... Sure. It's uh, a gamble. Take, yeah. Oh. Yeah. How do you well, how do you guys decide about where to put people across the country? Well, first and foremost, that is well above my pay grade. But, yeah, true. <laughs> but um, again, it really depends on coverage. I know right now they're um, looking at a few other markets in the United States to put other brand ambassadors. We have people in. There's me here in Chicago. We have uh, New York, Atlanta, Miami. 
um, LA, we have Seattle, of course, because we're from the Pac Northwest. So we've got we've got uh, people out there, um, and then of course uh, Louisville. Uh, my boss actually lives lives and works out of Louisville, right. which she she has she has the hardest job of all of us in the country because she's selling in, bourbon and rye in Louisville. Yeah, How hard is that? <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy, that that is an uphill battle for her. Uh, so um, one one I'm not particularly jealous of. No. Um, but yeah, so they're they're looking. Oh, and we just just hired someone down. I believe uh, is she Austin or I think San Antonio. Mm. Either way, Texas uh, Texas market person. Um, and I know they're talking about potentially another person in New York, potentially another person in California. Both of those markets have historically done very well for Woodenville. Um, I think it'll be just me here in Chicago for quite a while. I don't think I'm going to have a counterpart right. anytime soon, which is fine and dandy. Um, but really, those decisions are made not only from our brand, but again, from the portfolio. Mm. So Moet Hennessy will also sort of look from a much more top-down perspective and say, this is where we want our marketing dollars to be going and our brand ambassadors to be going from the whole portfolio and where we need to focus on things. They also balance that with, you know, don't forget there's, what, 27, I think, brands in the in the portfolio. So there are cities where... Overall spirits? Uh, uh, no, uh, just uh, everything. So we're uh, wine and spirits combined. So, yeah. you know, we have such wonderful famous names as, you know, Hennessy, um, Moet, <laughs> uh, but, you know, Dom Perignon, Belvedere, right. um, Glenmore and G. Ardbeg, all these wonderful, wonderful brands out there. Never heard of them. Yeah, never heard of them. Um, Especially Ardbeg. Yeah, and definitely, definitely <laughs> do not want to be chatting with their brand ambassadors on this podcast, that's for sure. That would be... Uh... We, we need to have Cam on the show. <laughs> I know. We need to. We need to make that happen. The man, the myth, the legend. Um, but uh, but yeah, so they'll they'll decide from an overall company perspective where they want people focusing on whether it's a bigger wine town or a bigger mm. spirits area, all that kind of stuff. So like I said, well, well outside of my pay grade. Yeah, no, I only ask because, you know, you're kind of involved in those conversations, I guess, with a, a, more of a startup in America, not where a startup brand, but, we, sure. you know, launching a brand from the other side of the world in America is essentially like starting the company all over again yeah. in that sense. And being kind of from the bottom of it, you see, all right, we're doing well in this state. We're doing okay in that state, but we don't have anybody in Texas and mm -hmm. it's a giant market we're doing okay in. But if we had somebody boots on the ground, instead of me traveling there once a month, it'd probably be more effective. Yeah. So yeah, it's the only reason why I bring it up because it, I don't know how brands move without boots on the ground. And it's probably a topic of conversation we'd, we probably don't talk about enough on this podcast. Sure. I am um, Steve or uh, um, Sean Joseph, who owns Pinhook, was telling me once about uh, Oklahoma and how well they were doing there, just mm -hmm. naturally. And I think it's one of those brands in America for on the whiskey side that's really taken off um, from the online presence, from this whole craft side that's doing pretty well in most of their markets. And they've never had anybody actually live in Oklahoma. It's like I had never visited Oklahoma this year. And we're still selling. X amount of cases and that X amount of cases, I won't say, but it was very impressive to the fact that nobody's actually there selling it on the ground. But then you put somebody in Chicago and you can see what this brand can do from, you know, here on the east side of the city all the way out to the west side of the suburbs, mm -hmm. which is 40 miles across the entire city um, in each direction, too. Yeah. So it's obviously very important when you can have somebody here and focus on what it, what it can be. I mean, we were talking about it last week. Uh, over at Bitter Pops, just like how oh, yeah. the, the effect of people being here um, and having those brands and then bringing a founder and doing events. I mean, it's it's why we're all employed, I hope right? So. Well, yeah, I hope so. It's it's one of the things that um, they actually brought this up on a team meeting fairly recently when they were discussing bringing on more ambassadors. And they were mm. talking about numbers, where we're doing nationwide. And they said one thing that we really stressed to the Moet Hennessy higher ups is they said, look at the numbers nationally. Mm. Now look at the numbers 
in the places where we have ambassadors on the ground. Mm. And it's a night and day difference. It really is. And they said it was the most easy decision for them to say, yes, you should have more ambassadors. Mm. Right. And I, I love that because, again, first of all, it's nice to have my job validated and justified. <laughs> I'm I, doing something. I like being employed. Yeah. Yeah. Shocker. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I do have this We're going to pull that quote out of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I love it. Nice, uh, new tagline for the whole podcast. There you go. <laughs> um, and I, it's just nice to, you know, it's it's nice to feel wanted, yeah, right? It but, is. Uh, but again, it does really show what you're saying, that boots on the ground, having somebody actively working in a market, it really is incredible when you look at that and you see what a stark difference it has in, in markets where you don't have people. There are the rare Oklahoma examples, like you're talking mm-hmm. about, where it'll just kind of come out of nowhere. And that is fantastic for any company. Yeah. And congratulations if you <laughs> have that going on. That is amazing. But uh, uh, apart from that, you need people talking about the brands, educating people on the brands, mm-hmm. talking to bar staff, doing tasting events, things like that. And I guess that's where the online presence has become such a vital aspect of our sure. industry. And it's giving you this um, almost third premise, if you will, from the on and the off mm-hmm. to show your showcase your whiskey, showcase your spirit, whatever, you're, honestly, whatever, whatever you're selling. But for us, it, there was a thought um, that Callum and Wilson and I were having over COVID, like, could we make this into a new online premise and mm-hmm. could be a whole part of the third part of selling your spirits across that platform? And we were doing it. We thought, yes, I think naively because it was honestly the only option at the time other than, you know, in stores were open, but what bars across the country were open, how many great accounts of all of our brands were still were closed for a year. You know, mm-hmm. like Delilah's closed for an entire year. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Um, think about it, one of those famous whiskey bars in the entire country. A place that uh, pre-pandemic had not closed a single day <laughs> right. since they opened <laughs> yeah. great point um also world whiskey day may 20th live kena lake event happening there oh lola didn't like lola that was <laughs> not, <laughs> not a fan lola was like i'm skipping it actually her first bar visit ever was at delilah's just I a know. couple weeks ago we were hanging out there on a saturday morning because now they're open on saturday mornings yeah that was a surprise <laughs> for me too but i'm i'm uh, a happy one <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i just worse, i just yeah. missed you that day <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, that was the, yeah, there was the, their bottle launch. Yeah. Their I, bottle launch. I slept in a little bit that day. So I, I don't blame you. I wasn't, I didn't stay for the bottle launch. Mm. Something called Weller. I don't know. Yeah. Never, never heard of never it. Never heard of it. No, but just getting back to like, that was the option. And we thought, okay, in this frame, we, in this framework, we could sell our whiskey online and be just as important as the on and off presence, but, uh, premise. But I don't think that holds true. Like it can be a component, but it can't be a key component. I don't think overall. I also think that uh, to qualify that a little bit, though, I was during uh, during the pandemic, I was still employed by my my first brand rep job uh, with Fever Tree. Uh, hashtag mixed with the best. Um, again, more more free advertising right there. Phenomenal brand. Oh, I, I loved working. With yeah, them. that was that was so much fun. Um, How we met. And yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, actually, this is a funny story that um, before I get back to my actual point, we met because we were doing a little project together and I come out with one of our like gift boxes of like five or six little 187 milliliter bottles. Beautiful box. Beautiful box. And you're welcome. Um, and all of a sudden, Jake rolls up with like full bottles of Star Wars for me and I was like, I think... I think I'm getting the better end of this deal. I kind of feel like a jerk now. No. It's just uh, good to have excess of whiskey. In, uh, truth, truth. Um, yeah, indeed. He says pointing to the magnificent collection. Yeah, um, it is a nice but yeah. b- back to the original point, though, when I was uh, during lockdown working for Fever Tree, being a water and mixer company, the mm. online business absolutely exploded. Oh, yeah. And for 
the for the alcohol adjacent non-alc space that mixer space that online retail is absolutely clutch they they do so much stuff online and they've done such good work with it over the last couple of years even post post pandemic or as i'd like to say post-ish pandemic because mm. you know it still exists but we don't need to bring the mood down no we don't no i guess it's, um, it, yeah those obviously the laws of selling water and tonics is uh-huh. a bit easier than oh, it is selling alcohol it was a dream <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's great i bet no and honestly if if the availability for alcohol to be sold the way that anything else is, you know, that's not deemed illegal to a certain age. Mm-hmm. It'd be amazing. Oh yeah. I mean, like, even right now I'm waiting for two bottles to come from a brand and you know, if UPS is like tried three days in a row and I got to sign some stupid little mm-hmm. papers, like just, just leave it here. It's like, there's like one kid that lives in my neighborhood yeah. and he's like, he looks like he's a 25 year old anyway. So <laughs> he has a better beer than I will ever have my entire life. And that's no joke. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair but enough. yeah, I guess if it was easier lawfully to sell alcohol um mm-hmm. through the online space which it has it's changed oh, def- sure. over the last five six years but not quite there yet when it comes to selling sodas and waters and tonics yes different different story but so, again so, alcohol adjacent as it right is absolutely and we put it those sodas into our our whiskey quite a bit indeed a highball is my favorite drink oh yeah yeah i was making highballs at an event the other night People were like are you making highballs it was like you know an older group of people i would say like the average age is probably like 50 years old and mm-hmm. i'm like i sure am like i haven't a highball in like 25 years i'm like well step on up oh yeah yeah a little feverish tree uh grape juice grape grapefruit oh the yeah. sparkling grapefruit yeah. oh, oh that so stuff good. is so good yeah that oh. and twofold it's mm-hmm. nice Yum. nice little combination you you know you know that stuff was good because that actually launched during the pandemic. Did it really? And it was one of the one of if not the most successful North American product launch period uh-huh. for Fever Tree. It was it was incredible. Like we we had all tried it. It was amazing stuff. Everyone was obsessed with it. And all of a sudden, even through the pandemic, people were just loading cases and cases into their pantry to be drinking. Really? With it. So yeah, that was just proof of the quality of that particular product. So. I have an entire rack in my storage unit filled with it. <laughs> so Nice. Yeah. Um, we went a little too ambitious on buying for an event last fall and ah. have a few bottles left over. But you know, when other events pop up, Yep. It's right it's there, readily available. Still good to go. So, how did you start with Fever Tree? That that is a that is a funny story. One that will require a, another drink. Actually, oh. so I'm going to pass this bottle around. Hi-yo. Um, by the way, whilst we were going on yeah, tangents uh, yeah, there, we, we missed we missed well, just my shameless product uh, advertisements. We tried some of our port finished uh, American whiskey. So this was that same bourbon we started with that does an extra six to nine months in ruby port casks. Mm. Really, really fantastic whiskey. Excellent stuff. Very much a whiskey heads whiskey. Um, just robust. This, what we're tasting now, the the final one I brought, this one's a little special. This is a distillery select that they did. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have come home with a couple of bottles last time I went to Seattle. Uh, this is that same rye whiskey we had finished in ruby port casks. Okay. So I, yeah. I, I want to ask you a question, but I'm afraid you can't answer it yet. Go ahead. Um, Muscatel? Is that I didn't bring any today. Is that happening though? Oh, it happened and it's, it's Oh, it's out? Oh, but it's gone. Oh. Well, oh, that came and went. I'm so sorry, brother. Oh, I have, no, no, I didn't know I it was have, out yet. I have a splash left at home, so I will bring some personal for you to try. Uh, no, the Muscatel, that's that's another limited release we did. Our barrel dealer basically came at us and said, hey, we've got, uh, that sounds so shady, barrel dealer. Yeah. Uh, barrel broker, I suppose, would be the... Uh, <laughs> I like dealer better. I like barrel dealer. Yeah, I'm going yeah. to stick with that. Um, our broker came and said, hey, we've got these 12 random 
Moscatel cask. And if, if anybody's not familiar with Moscatel, it's a, a beautiful... Actually, why don't... Do you, do you want yeah. to step up to the plate? Yeah, here? sure. <laughs> sure. Um, this is where Stephen comes in the I play. mean, I am a certified sherry wine specialist. I so am. I could explain. Oh, you could. <laughs> um, and you're more than welcome to. Uh, Muscatel is, uh, or in the sherry world, is used... Uh, the grape is used exclusively for Muscatel sherry. Um, it's m- arguably my favorite sweeter sherry in that the Muscatel grape, as you may know, is very floral. It's very bright. It's very jammy, like, you know, loads of notes of, you know, raspberries and blackberries. It's a very vibrant grape. And it's something that, uh, you know, I've been saying for years, like, why isn't anyone doing a Muscatel finish? Mm-hmm. Everyone goes, defaults to PX or Oloroso or a blend of the two, which is essentially a cream sherry. But I, I feel like the Muscatel has so much to offer. And it seems like people are starting to catch up and, you know, realize like, oh, this, this stuff is the best. Yeah. And uh, the problem is that the barrels are few and far between and very, very expensive. Right. Right. So we were lucky enough to get our hands on 12 of them. They did a limited release bourbon that they, I mean, 12 barrels might be all we're ever going to get of that. Mm. And I don't want to rub it in, but my goodness, was that one of the finest American whiskeys I've ever had. It was so good. There's this beautiful yellow raisin note that just explodes on your palate. It's floral. It's it's gracious. It's just, it's such good whiskey. That was released. Um, we were lucky to get a pretty good allocation here uh, for Illinois and for Chicago. Um, and literally, I think I think the last three bottles from our distributor sold last week. So uh-huh. that's it's out in the market. There are a few places. Am I, am I allowed to talk about specific accounts while I'm Please. on the podcast? Um, if you go to uh, two Lettuce Entertain You places, one, uh, Oakville, that just launched. Oh, yeah. Uh, a great space. Uh, I got, got, uh, got to go to the opening. Really wonderful. They have uh, several bottles of the Muscatel finish on the back bar. I, if you have the chance, go try it. Uh, Bub City downtown has nice. always had Muscatel. They've got a, g- a good allocation there, so they've got some wonderful whiskeys. Um, I'm trying to think who else has. I know th- there are a few other spots in town, but I'll, I will always say this to people. There were a few places that picked it up for retail, many mm-hmm. out in the suburbs. If you see a bottle of it, buy it, period. You will you will not regret it. It is one of my absolute favorite whiskeys. Um, What's the I, retail price of it? Uh, it depends on the retailer. Ultimately, last place I saw was selling it for about 85 okay. I want to say. That's crazy. So, crazy. Yeah, like, yeah. nothing out of this world. For how rare those casts are. Yeah, yeah. Ex- exactly. So, that, that was reasonable. Um, I was, I was lucky that I got to, I got to pull a couple of bottles for myself. Most have been gone to tastings, but I, I may or may not have one or two squirreled away at home for, <laughs> for As you should. personal use, but, uh. <laughs> Um, but yeah, God, such such good whiskey. Uh, I think I'm allowed to announce a spoiler at this point. We do have another limited release that's going to be coming out this mm. fall. Uh, very much looking forward to it. And if I'm not allowed to say this, then I uh, hope my boss isn't listening to the podcast. Um, it's going to be uh, it's going to be our bourbon that's had applewood staves in the barrel. That was done for a it was a signature Manhattan or signature old fashioned whiskey that we've been making for a restaurant chain out in Seattle for mm. a number of years. Mm. And finally, the company just basically said, "This is way too good." Can we open this up to other people? And right. and graciously, they've said, yeah, of course. We don't have. They didn't have like rights to it, but they they had a conversation and said, yeah, you can you can launch this. And so we're we've made more, and it's I got to try it out in Seattle, and oh man, it's very tasty. Very similar to the story of Baller or St. George, how they were making it essentially for one restaurant, and they're like, mm-hmm. we should make this for the masses. It's really yes, good. And it my, is really good. And my <laughs> thank you for making that for the masses. Oh, I know I asked you about Figure Tree, and we'll get back to that. Oh, uh, yes, yeah. Sorry, but, we really no, 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 got it, a tangent No, it's there. fine. I'm, I'm, I love the tangent, and it's great to have a sherry expert, or apparently two sherry experts in, in the house. Uh, 
I've one done, one done, expert and one punter. I've done three. Po- <laughs> I've done three podcasts on Sherry, so it's basically the same thing. It is. <laughs> I love Sherry. Um, I highly, highly recommend for any industry professionals out there the the uh, sh- uh, certified Sherry wine specialist course. Uh, Lustau pioneered. I did that last uh, September. Absolute riot. Total blast. Really, really fun. Very engaging. Uh, and I know way more about Sherry than I ever thought. And for a whiskey head, it's just so nice to really know right. what is the difference between. Oloroso and PX, even something as simple as that. Like yes. you hear these phrases all the time, and yet I think eighty percent of whiskey people don't actually know the difference. Right. So. We can say it imparts sweetness. Right. Yeah. Like, right. Cool. Like why? Wow. How? Yeah. How is how are the chemical reactions working mm-hmm. together with the tannins of the barrel and all that? Which kind of leads me into the question. I mean, these are both great. I've had um, I actually killed a very quick bottle of the bourbon port finish. Oh, it goes fast. Um, it's dangerous. I don't. I think I've, I know I've had the rye, but it's probably I want to say at an event where that your might... senses are blown out of all proportions. Yeah, the, especially at Whiskey X this year. The rye is Distillery Select. Oh yeah, Whiskey X. The rye is Distillery Select. So I'm I'm fairly certain I'm the only one that's got bottles here in in okay. Chicago. So we might have tried that on our we, own at one. Have we point tried at Whiskey X. Uh, Did you have it? No, I didn't bring that. Okay. Okay. Whiskey X. Okay. We Maybe they have not then. Either way, I'm, I'm trying lying. to think. We 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 drink a lot of whiskey together, so I'm sure at some it's point true. in time it's come up. But uh, yeah, I brought a few back. But also, my my predecessor might have also had them mm-hmm. from uh, who I believe you, uh, Eric Rosentreter, good friend. Yeah, uh, phenomenal ambassador with uh, with a lovely brand, Old Elk. Now coming think, back uh, on the podcast with Greg Metz next week. Fantastic, oh, wow. fantastic. Yes. Well, I'm a little nervous about that one. I'm not gonna oh, yeah. not gonna lie. <laughs> Guy's been distilling longer than I've been alive. Oh my god, yeah. So yeah. Um, no, they're that's he's good friend good guy and uh and a, and a big whiskey head too knows mm. knows a lot about it but he you might have tasted that with him too because i think he might have a bottle okay uh, hiding I, away somewhere so. very possible in that sense but it's it's interesting how both the uh, different mash bills create all these different flavors to mm. it i love the leathery note a little bit of a cherry factor that comes from the rye with yeah. it yeah. like old-fashioned like in a glass almost you, so yeah suddenly you, you add that to the port and it's like oh this is just this is just a cocktail yeah you know this is just a cocktail right here that's beautiful and i i'm always and Stephen and i were actually talking before we turned the microphones on about bourbon and uh wine finishes because you know you, wine typically has a sweeter taste to it um that's what it's getting part onto the whiskey itself from the barrels and obviously corn is a sweet grain mm-hmm. and sometimes you can put too much sweetness on top of sweetness yeah and double down on that in not a good way but it's so balanced in that sense, it's like very juicy flavors to it, and it, um, it easily goes on the palate too. But it's also fl- it fills the palate at the same time. And I was wondering, since being from Seattle in the Northwest, where there's great wines that are produced produced out there, is that where barrel finishing began with Woodenville for using local vineyards or at all? Uh, that's actually again, I don't have an answer oh. to that. Uh, I don't, I don't know because they ha- okay. So we have a whole warehouse of random experimental stuff yeah so they've they've done they, they will do warehouse select releases once every quarter or so where they'll just pull these random barrels i've tried oh gosh last time i was out at the distillery you go into the office and there's this giant shelf of just whiskeys that you're never going to get to taste again yeah. and i got to taste it, an armagnac cask a second phil cognac cask all this a calvados cask all this random stuff that we're never going to see i will never get my hands on a bottle of we're never going to see those um, i tasted a phenomenal willamette pinot noir cask there mm-hmm. as well so i know mm-hmm. they have done things mm-hmm. in uh in uh, uh washington wine right. uh, or at least wine the barrels region. at least yeah, yeah. so um but that being said, I, I don't know what started that with the owners. And I think it was just sort of that 
experimental entrepreneurial spirit where they said, yeah, let's let's mess around with this. We found our core. We know what we do really well, and this is what's getting presented to the world. Now let's mess around with it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's do some fun stuff. We've got time. We've got the resources for it, so they, they keep on keeping on. I think a rye and a Pinot de Chirant barrel would be Ooh. something worth investigating. I see where your head's at, and I like where your head's at. <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not alone. <laughs> How do you feel about these uh, port finishes? I think they're fantastic. I, I mean, it's it's the balance, like you mentioned, the balance uh, is you know a huge part of it, and I, uh, it comes off perfectly. It's like it's there, but it's not overpowering. Mm-hmm. It it like is you know seals the flavor together in a really nice way. Mm, it's a good way of putting it. It's nice trying them together with the core lineup yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, the back to back is really nice. That's why I wanted to have all four before. here tonight, just because I thought this would be this would be a lot of fun. Uh, and speaking of which, they're all they're all open. We've Ooh. gone through them all. Help yourselves. This is, you. this is this is these are now up for grabs. Gentlemen. Are these so, all you. available across Chicago? Uh, nope, uh, not the again, not the port finish rye. That's that's just at the distillery yep. out in Seattle. But the core lineup, yeah, you can get these. You can get uh, Binnie's Garfields, any of the major retailers around. Um, there are also a lot of lovely single barrels available out there here in the Chicagoland mm-hmm. area. We um, have one. Uh, yeah, I was about to I think there's still bottles that are available. I think that's well, that's about two. Yeah, that's Gold Eagle up north, and I've I've got at least one more bottle of this. Uh, at my place as well really lovely single barrel pick and you know spoiler they, they may or may not be considering doing another single barrel spoiler. coming up so spoilers spoiler. spoiler. no promises don't don't quote me on that or again I might be in trouble um, he says into the microphone that is actively recording so. I'm now just noting the proof yes ballsy 117.54 yeah they're not playing around no so. not playing around at um, all. but there, there are some great single barrel picks in town again sh- shameless plugs for some of our retailers yeah, here uh, Rayans up on North Clark Street oh, yeah. nice Rayans is got, oh man they picked one of my favorite single barrels that's out there just because there's this wonderful green, unexpected green apple note that mm. goes through the whole thing, and it just sings of orchard fruit. I I don't know directly where that came from, though it is it is worth noting that surrounding the actual Amon family farm are apple orchards. Oh. So that's kind of one of those, I don't know if that's a terroir thing, to, right. to borrow the wine phrase, to, if that's real, or if that's just my imagination, but I've always gotten this beautiful apple note out of that. Uh, of course, Warehouse, um, down, in the, down in the South Loop, right by my... Uh, my home is it, Gene did a brilliant uh, barrel pick there, so that's really wonderful. Garfield's has one, very fond of that as well. Mm. So, uh, and then yeah, this lovely one from Gold Eagle. When you sell barrel picks, do you bring the barrels into market and have them sample here, or do you take customers out to the distillery? We typically are bringing samples here in town. We like to do three or four different samples, so they'll they'll pull from barrels and make sure that they we do a big tasting event and make yeah. sure everyone's happy with what they're picking. Um, occasionally people will actually go out to the distillery, but to tell the truth, to get to the family farm, to get to the Omelin family farm where the Rick houses are, you've got to cross the mountains, right? It's That's on the far side of the state from Seattle, and it's about a six-hour drive. There is no easy way really? to get there. Um, actually, when I was out in January, we were talking about going, and literally my boss goes, yeah, we're not going on this trip because we're going to have to drive through the mountain pass, and it's winter, and right. I am not risking that right now. It's not worth it. I said, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, so... While it is very fun and romantic to like <laughs> the idea of, yes, let's go out, let's go to the Rick House, let's taste from the barrels. It's like, do you really want to drive six hours out to the western or eastern Washington? Because right. I don't, but um, but yeah, so so typically we're sending the samples here in, in market. Uh, we have single barrels coming into Hotel Zachary for their oh, signature wow. Manhattan, very excited for oh, that. Cool, so, great. uh, uh, shout out to uh, to my guy Josue who's running the bar program. They're phenomenal mixologists, they do yeah. great work there. Uh, and also to uh, RPM, 
uh, RPM Steak. They're they're big supporters of the brands. Uh, Mike, their amazing beverage director, has uh, did a single barrel pick, and that should be showing up pretty soon. I'm very excited to launch both of those in the on trade here, which is which is grand because it's just lovely to see those behind bars and be able to cocktail with them and not just sitting on shelves at retail. I just I love getting a single barrel actually into the on trade. So. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's great accounts to be in too here oh, in yeah. Chicago. So if you if you live here, go support it. Yes. If you're visiting, great places to visit while you're in Chicago cuz some of the top tier restaurants we have mm-hmm. to offer in this amazing city of vast culinary arts. And, and if you're there's a lamp behind me. And yeah. if you're never going to be here, then we're just tormenting you with tales of good whiskey. Right. But so. I'm sure there's other single barrels out in other markets. Plenty. Yeah. Plenty all over the country. Um we actually just this year unallocated those barrels uh so so previously you had to go through quite a process and we would only do so many a year and this year they basically said you know what the single barrel is the hot topic everyone wants one everyone's into it we're just opening it up if you want a single barrel pick let's go for it so you know how many you do in a year usually I, again, I don't have a number on that. Uh, I know we can go on a waiting list. They can only do so many a month, right? Yeah. So so eventually, if we get too many people stacked up, there'll be kind of a wait list. It's about a three, four-month process as well. It's not bad. Yeah. Oh, it's, I mean, for, for the whiskey industry, it's a quick turnaround. If you look at some of the big dogs out there that do a lot of single barrels, um, you can be looking at a year-and-a-half wait list kind of oh, thing. Yeah. So, so for us to be able to say, once you've made your decision, we can get it to you probably within four months, that's, that's a yeah, pretty that's big deal. Yeah. Do you like focusing on one brand instead of the whole portfolio it is different i will say that um i did a lot of work with woodenville when i was full portfolio because mm-hmm. i i really genuinely respect the brand i really like the juice i'm a big whiskey head just in general even though i you know i, I worked in wine and champagne for a long time and all that with with Boat hennessy um i will fully admit that i do miss the champagne mm. and that's because i i had when i was full portfolio i will say that i had the joy of being able to go and watch a boxing match while ripping Hennessy shots with people at a bar top. And then the next day I would have a Dom Perignon event where it's all bells and whistles and champagne and oysters. Um, and then the day after I'd be wearing a flannel shirt talking about Woodenville and have an old fashioned. So it's like, I, I had this whole smorgasbord of fun things that I could be doing. You can all use all characters of your personality. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Never a dull day. Yeah, precisely. But, um, I will say this of, of all the many brands I've represented, I'm very, very fond of Woodenville. I think it's a, it's just, it's just fun whiskey. It is and it's a great whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing the right thing. I was, I don't know, I don't know if I was standoffish to it. Maybe I just wasn't introduced to it ever sure. or whatever it might be. Um, but I actually went to the first Leo single barrel launch at Fountainhead. Oh yeah. Um, that was what summer of 2020. I think it was, like, it was that small 19, gap when maybe? the bars and restaurants were kind of back open. Yeah. That, that like August gap where yeah. we were all like, Oh good. Everything is back to yeah, normal. I just remember sitting at the bar and being like, Oh, I forgot how hard this job is when it's like fully going. <laughs> and everyone's like, you look like shit. I'm like, oh, thanks. Great. Appreciate you. I'm doing my job. You know, I'm finally doing it after three months of not doing really anything. But uh, tasting everything. And we started with the core lineup, tasted, I believe, two single barrels they bought mm-hmm. for that and was like, oh, wow, I've been you know, sleeping on this brand, for yeah. lack of better terms. Uh, it was. I was totally turned on to it. And then once Eric got the job, I'm like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, just, you know, have him tell me the story of it, the complexity of it all. And just kind of fell in love with everything you guys do. Yeah. yeah it's, it's an easy story to tell. And I've, you know, I, I'm picky about where I work. I suppose I've, I've had, I've been very, very privileged in my rep career and my ambassador career where I've gotten to work with really wonderful high-end brands. Yeah. Right. I'm very, very spoiled. Um, and this is just the next in the long line of really, really good juice that I get to peddle. Yeah. No, it's so tasty. Better. What, um, 
Are you guys doing anything other than bourbon and rye? Not at the moment, no. The, the, we are we are a whiskey distillery, so bourbon rye. Uh, we're you know we're we're not going to release a gin or a vodka or anything anytime soon. No, uh, it's more <laughs> like the single malt or something in there. Yeah, I yeah. would I would love. I would love to see Woodenville's take on single malt. There's a few Washington have, distilleries doing some good single uh, yeah, malt. Just, yeah, just yeah, a couple sure. of yeah. them out yeah. there yeah. With, yeah. with oddly similar names somehow. True. That's, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know who in... Uh, if you're in Washington, you have to have a distillery that starts with a W. Yeah. <laughs> Go on, right? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah it's a law now. Uh, I would love to see us encounter a single malt coming out of Woodenville. I don't know if that's in the cards. Um I would certainly badge them about it because I think it would be a lot of fun. I think our barley is very high quality, and I think we could really, really enjoy that. Mm. I think it would be a really excellent whiskey. I guess I should get back to the question I asked you about 25 minutes ago oh, yeah. about Fever Tree. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of great brands that I've worked for. How did that become your first brand job? That, oh, man. Um, so I started looking into brand jobs when I was working for CH Distillery here in Chicago. Oh, uh, I didn't know you were for CH. Yeah, man. I was behind the bar. Uh, we I, I helped... Uh, Craft one of the many generations of the bar program there. I love that job. It was a ton of fun. Huh. Mad respect for their products and their their owners, distillers, everything. Yeah. Uh, still have a great relationship there. They're the good, good, good people. Story of blending right there. Oh, yeah. seriously, yeah. 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 And uh, side note, when I first moved back to Chicago, Alex took me to CH and got me obliterated. <laughs> it was such a good afternoon, oh, early evening. Man. Oh, my That's God. I came home with so many bottles. Holy it was so cow. nice. Thank got... you again for that. Oh, you are <laughs> Welcome to one of the my favorite afternoons that I generally remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, we we hit it hard that day. <laughs> um, anyway, so I saw what their ambassadors were doing. I thought it was really interesting. So mm. I started poking around, asking friends who were reps. Friend of a friend recommended me to a recruiter that did high-level roles. So he mm. said, she's not going to have a job for you, but she'll be, have good advice. We chat. She gets me a few interviews. Things don't work out at various brands. All of a sudden, randomly, a year later, she reaches out and says, hey, are you still looking for a rep role? I said, yeah, I would love that. And uh, and she goes, well, do you, do you know the company Fever Tree? And, of course, I'm sitting on my computer. I'm like, yeah, I, I love Fever Tree. Meanwhile, I'm on Google, like, Fever-Tree? Is that what that is? Is that where I am? Um, uh, one word? One word. I'm not really certain. Yes, the ginger beer yeah. company. Yeah, that one. Uh, and she said, well, they're looking for a rep very last minute. So what was happening in that time was that my uh, former boss, Mel, now the Central Region Director, a uh, very high-level role, awesome, awesome human being, uh, Mel was about to go on maternity leave. Mm. And uh, and I'll razz her for this because I always do. She waited a little too long to hire someone to cover her maternity leave and kind of stalled and stalled and stalled and then all of a sudden went, oh God, I got about five weeks before this kiddo is due. I, I need to I yeah. need to hire someone. So I go through this very quick turnaround. Uh, phone interview into in-person interview next day into a phone interview with her boss on the Friday afternoon and I get a call 45 minutes later offering me the job. It was just this boom, 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 here you are, you're our guy. So the idea was, you're going to cover her maternity leave, you're going to work for us for about four months of the summer, maybe five, and if you do well, we're going to offer you a full-time role. Um, spoiler, it was admitted to me by my bosses later that they said, we actually had no idea you would do as well as you did. We were not really planning on offering <laughs> anyone a full-time role. Well done. Uh, I'm very proud of that, actually. Yeah, as so you should be. My, my favorite part of the story, though, is that um, Mel wound up uh, a kiddo came a little earlier than anticipated. Uh, happy, healthy baby boy, doing great, all that stuff. Everyone's happy. Um, and so I got one day of training with my boss's boss who flew up from Texas. He flew up for, on a Thursday. We met Thursday morning. Um, 
we had a, a full day of training Friday morning. Then I went and met our distributors and then he flew out and said, well, go hit the market. Good luck. Have fun. And I am just a bar manager at the time. Yeah. I had no, no idea clue. what I was doing. Uh, and so back to the whole boots on the ground thing, I just kind of hit the bricks. I just, they gave me an account run of like, here's places that have fever tree. Here are places that don't go and visit them. And yeah sell some product and i just spent the whole summer hustling uh and it it was very very stressful it was very difficult and then we came to the end of the summer and in a little conference here in chicago they announced that they were officially going to hire me and mm-hmm. the, the rest was history so uh uh yeah gr- again great role great company i got to work with a lot of very industry ogs very experienced people that work for fever tree they don't they didn't i i was the first hire of the second generation of hires for the company for the u.s team mm. Um, and I was really lucky cause I was basically the only one who didn't have former rep or distribution experience. I was just this bar manager who happened to do really well one summer and they were like, eh, fuck it. We'll take a flyer on this guy. He's, he's, he's got a nice smile. He can, he can charm his way into, into some bars and that was it. So well earned. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to have that different perspective coming into that, um, that job. I think being an ambassador, being a market manager, you know, if you're more sales focused, it, I think it's, there's less, there's less creative or there's more creative restrictions. Sure. Um, but if you're a brand ambassador, you kind of have to figure out yourself. Like, mm-hmm. should I go to this event of another brand to see like, who's there, who yeah. I might run into, talk to them, like work in that lead. Should I go to this conference? Because there's going to be a lot of people that I want to talk to all in one room instead of going to like three accounts in one night. I can hit like 10 accounts in one afternoon or one day and talk to people in that sense. And it's always about feeling it out. And I think it's the people that come with a creative mindset of whatever, maybe like you were an artist, maybe you're a photographer, maybe you're somebody who never um, had a brand job, but you also never did sales either. So you're just kind of figuring out on your own. It can make for a really great way of selling a brand. Well, and what I was back in my twenties was a professional actor, right? And the whole idea, and I know you come from your, your photography background and no, your, your arts true. background. <laughs> Are we all? We're all Music. artists. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was a, you, you're a phenomenal musician. I've, I've, I've seen your I've seen your Instagram. You do good work. Thank you. But I, I came from a background of acting, which is you're given very explicit instructions. Here's point mm. A. Here's point B. You have to walk across the stage and go from here to here. Right. And you have to find your creativity within that space. And so coming into the brand side of things, they say, okay, here you are. This is an account that has Fever Tree or doesn't have, has the product, doesn't have the product. We either need you to get more product or get the product in in between. You've got your point A, your point B, and the world is your oyster. You just mm-hmm. have to creatively problem solve to to find out how to do that mm. in, in between. Do you think in that sense the canvas is bare or there are are there restrictions of how to actually put that into uh into work like like paint that picture Hmm. i think we are always building off of our predecessors in many ways Mm -hmm. and brands very much and marketing from brands very much have their idea of what they would like and what they would like to see and where where it would like to go and with every brand you work for there is always a settling in period of first you have to acknowledge how they want things done And then you can slowly work in the creativity of, but this is also how I do things and how I would like to see things done. And this is, you know, we, we get to take some ownership of, of our brands and where we are. Oh yeah. You know, I am, I am the Midwest brand ambassador for Woodenville whiskey. Yeah. I am the only person in the Midwest that is 
directly employed through and representing Woodenville Whiskey. So I am I'm happy to say I get to have some creativity and a little bit of say over what goes on in in my various markets in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan, so on and so forth. But also, my boss and the company have a very distinct vision of what is going to happen in these markets, and I have to make sure to be living to those standards as well. Right, and when you're that only person, they're buying you yeah. as much as they're buying the brand. Exactly. Sure. Thus, thus the ambassador. That's why it's so personalized as an ambassador. You take so much personal responsibility for the brand yeah. because it's not just about, are you a salesperson who can sell this? Mm-hmm. We have these giant distributor teams that can definitely are wonderful salespeople who can definitely sell all of our products great relationships absolutely phenomenal i I adore my team at breakthrough they're great people um and they do such fine work but at the same time i was the one that was hired to be the face of this particular brand and i have to i have to i have to invest in that emotionally and personally Mm -hmm. i have Mm -hmm. to understand that yes i was chosen to do this and i i'm proud of that you know I've always looked at, you know, the, the two arms of, you know, being a salesperson versus an ambassador as mm-hmm. like the salesperson opens the door. The ambassador provides the doorstop and yeah. keeps the door open. Like, you know, we're responsible for cultivating the relationship. And, you know, as, as you know, when a buyer moves, it's like, oh, you know, shit, I got to start all over at, you know, this bar. But also that means, oh, mm-hmm. I now have a new account. Yes. If I did my job right, I now have a new account. And thankfully for, you know, my brand, Loustal, that's something that goes over very well for us. You yeah. know, the people who have ordered our product will continue to order it because they do love the brand. And so it is really this nice snowball effect that we, you know, mm-hmm. get to see as ambassadors. And I feel like sales, you know, people don't. Yeah, it's a vice versa effect of like how much they're buying us as much as they're buying the brand. We're buying into bartenders and GMs and buyers of a retail shop because when they do transition to a new place, we can take that existing relationship with them or we can go along with them for that ride, which is a great thing to have. And I've kind of always thought it in the sense of what you were just saying too. Like we're the closer of the baseball team, like the sales reps, the starters, and we come in in the eighth inning or the ninth inning and close that deal and but also maintain that relationship at the same time. I've said it many times to distributor partners at the various distributors I've worked with. Uh, I've often said the hardest part of your job is the easiest part of my job. And the easiest part of your job is the hardest part of mine. Mm. So for you, you're, you're a distributor, right? You have a set route. People are going to be placing orders from you yeah. and you are going to be developing relationships with these buyers. Yeah. So you are going to be going in to XYZ account and they have no choice but to get to know you and to work with you right. if they want their orders Unless placed. you're absolutely terrible yeah. and they report then, you. Well, then, and then you're terrible at your job. And that's that, doesn't <laughs> ha- that doesn't happen too often. <laughs> but I, it has happened from time to time. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And not everyone's cut out for the job. For us as ambassadors, we spend so much time cold calling, going in, <laughs> trying to meet the right person, trying to make a relationship. And yet at the same time, that opposite side. So for the distributor... They've got this massive portfolio of wine and spirits and everything to be selling. They might have their own goals, their own focuses, and they might not be able to convince a certain buyer that this one product is right for them. For us as ambassadors, it is our job to be able to convince anyone that our product is right for them. So it's I, I've always said to, to my sales teams that I've worked with saying, hey, look, if you get me in the door, I will get you the sale. Period. Mm-hmm. Like that is mm-hmm. what I am here for. Use me as a tool. Use yes. me as a resource. Send, put me in coach because if you just point me at the right person, give me that warm introduction rather than the cold call, I can make the rest happen and everyone's happy at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. I feel like you 
have the same conversation to Kelly that I have with Brittany at the end of the night. I'm like, just, just, just let me do it. You like, specific- just give me the door. You yeah. specifically <laughs> promised. It, it's, oh, it's true. Man, God, you did. broke before I did. You <laughs> broke before I it's did. My fault. We have to end <sighs> that. We have to end this podcast. <laughs> well, actually, it has been a very quick hour. I know oh you have to get to the suburbs. That I do, in unfortunately. An hour and 15 but, minutes, uh, um, which with this traffic right, right now. It's going to be more like an hour 45. So. With, the, with all the construction <laughs> happening in Chicago. My oh. goodness. And then throw in the NASCAR race that's happening. Yeah. Oh, really, that's coming up. That. That's yeah. going to be a thing. I think that's going to be in our neighborhood. We might actually be able to see that. I was going to say, you might be able to watch it from there. Somebody, yeah. somebody asked me, like, do you know anybody who lives downtown that can watch it? I'm like, I know a couple. I'll bring watch. the sherry. I was just going to say, we got, we got a lot of whiskey at home. So uh, uh, watching watching party from the uh, from the Brickagama apartments oh, in the be, South Loop. That would be uh, that sounds quite amazing. a show. Yeah. Um, well, Alex, this is, I mean, that was like the fastest hour I think I've ever had in this oh podcast. God, this is a riot. We could, we're all talkers. We could all go on for we another still need hour to do and a half. The, <laughs> the couples of the industry podcast. That we should. Yeah. That we should. That'd be a lot of fun. Um, what we were alluding to, um, you, know, you can explain, I guess, not me. I shouldn't speak behind on your behalf of your relationship. That's that's fine. Either way, either way. Uh, the love of my life happens to be someone who has been featured on this podcast a great number of times a before. Great number. Miss <laughs> Kelly Nakagama, uh, and she, and, and we we promised we weren't going to talk about her today, but I guess we are. Mm. Um, and yeah, we're we are a a whiskey couple, as it were. We we both have a lot to do with the whiskey world here in Chicago, and uh, know a lot about whiskey, and would love to be on the podcast at the same time talking about whiskey and probably making fun of each other the entire time with other couples with other couples yeah we've talked about that yeah. like this big uh all the all the wine and spirits couples uh, of the industry or whiskey yeah specific. and some sort of like a game show mm-hmm. as well involved with it so just exactly to- you know, uh, humiliate one another. Precisely. Because that's that's what we do. It's, it could be like a whiskey partners. family feud. Yeah, exactly. that's kind of what I was exactly. thinking. Exactly. For sure. We'll make it. it happen sometime. <laughs> well, um, Alex, thank you for bringing the whiskey. Of um, course. A wonderful conversation. This is a riot. Sharing thank your you so story. I feel like there's a part two and three that needs to come out, come about. But um, I'll be around, man. You got my number. I do. <laughs> this is true. Uh, Stephen, thank you for of also. Of course. Always a pleasure to hang out with both of you. Um, anything to promote real quick? This will come out next Monday. This will come out next Monday. Uh, Twix now and then, actually, there's really nothing going on. So uh, uh, we, there's, uh, I'll say, buy Woodenville. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Absolutely. Stephen, anything to promote? Uh, no. Buy Woodenville. Thank you. <laughs> buy Woodenville. Buy, and buy Lustau and Star Wars as well. Those Absolutely. are all wonderful, wonderful products. I don't, really, I don't really promote on here, but I am doing a Star Wars made the fourth party. Uh, I will oh, we'll be we're there. We're trying to figure out if we're going to make it because we fly out to Puerto Rico the next morning. So just, you just, you just yeah. leave early. Yeah. You find like what seven to eight. Yeah. Leave Leave a Star Wars event I know. early. Okay, I beg that's your fair. pardon. That's fair. But, uh, you, it's either all or nothing. <laughs> May 4, 7 o'clock, come Matilda. Um... Cocktail specials, whiskey tasting that's free, prizes, mm-hmm. life artist activation. We're doing a, I think a graffiti mural of Star Wars and Star love Wars it, love it, love combined. It. Love it, love it. Yeah. Also that night, I'm just gonna throw out a few things because I have a few things going do on. It, fire I, away. Never do this, but uh, it's your podcast, man. But I never do this. Um, we are also doing a happy hour at Guild Row, sponsoring a Star Wars happy hour that night from five to seven. Mm. And then we're also on a cocktail menu special at both Love Street and um, uh, Victor, Bar Victor Bar for Star Wars May the 4th Day as well uh, with two Star Wars cocktails at each location that night. So you can drink a lot of Star Wars in the city. Oh, in the north side, actually. And you should. <laughs> Thank you. Well, bye, Woodenville. Bye, Woodenville. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bye, Woodenville. Cheers, guys. Cheers.